Thank you so much, Children's Choir parents. What an incredible opportunity to have the heart and mind of your children formed into the image of Christ. If your children are not participating in one of our children's choirs, I would highly encourage you to get them connected. What a beautiful communication of the truth of the gospel. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Exodus as we continue to make our way through this declaration and revelation of God to his people. Exodus chapter 3. We have made our way now to this text. We have been reminded of Moses' first 80 years of life. We saw a snapshot of the first 40 years that included his birth narrative and his mother placing him in a basket and then being raised in Pharaoh's home and then the second 40 years of his life living down in Midian and being married to Jethro's daughter. And our text picks up now as Moses is some 80 years old. And this text from Exodus chapter 3 to Exodus chapter 4 sets for us the foundation of what is in many ways going to take place over the course of the rest of our journey through the book of Exodus as God calls to himself this prophet, this prophet Moses, who will ultimately lead his people to freedom out of slavery. This text here in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, teaches us that God continually reminds his people of his character. God continually reminds his people of his character so that we are reminded that our lives do not depend upon our ability. God continually reminds his people of his character so that we as his people are reminded that our lives do not depend upon our ability, but on God's promises. We want to see two truths that are communicated in this text of Scripture as it relates to that main idea. The first truth that we see about God's character is God is holy. God is holy. We see that in chapter 3, verses 1 through Six, and then beginning, or verses one through five, and then beginning in verse six through the end of the chapter, we are reminded that God is faithful. God is faithful. Listen at the narrative of this text of Scripture. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father in law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning. Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. 
And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come up to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, and as God says to Moses, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. As this text unfolds, we learn immediately a few things about Moses himself. Now remember who Moses was before he fled down to Midian. Moses had been raised inside of Pharaoh's home. Moses was used to being served. Moses was used to being in Pharaoh's palace. Moses was used to being exceedingly prominent. Moses was used to being in the very presence of very powerful people. Moses has to flee because he's killed a man and now he's down in Midian. And notice what the text of scripture opens up here with in chapter three. Now Moses was doing what? Keeping the flock of his father-in-law. Someone tell me, what is the lowest form of service or work anyone could ever do in the ancient Near East? Be a shepherd. I think ultimately what God is doing for us in this connection is reminding us of who Moses himself is. And God in some ways is also reminding Moses of exactly who you are. God through this imagery is connecting Moses very closely to his people, the nation of Israel. Moses is, at the end of the day, not a prominent son of Pharaoh. He is a lowly person from the nation of Israel. Moses has now been set, if you will, 
in his proper place. He is a lowly shepherd. But notice, Moses doesn't even have the means to be a shepherd of his own flock. Moses is a shepherd of his father-in-law's flock. Moses, if you will, has forgotten and left behind all of the wealth and prominence that once was his in Pharaoh's palace. But Moses has now been brought to that place where he's ready to be used by God. Moses is reminded of exactly who he is. And notice what he does. He takes a sheep on quite a journey from the land of Midian all the way to Mount Horeb, or we're going to see Mount Horeb occur again in the book of Exodus. We're going to know that mountain primarily as Mount Sinai, right? So Moses has fled quite a journey away from the land of Midian. He's probably a several weeks journey away from the land of Midian. He's at Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, which is itself the very mountain of God. And the most unusual thing in all the world happens. Now we oftentimes see unusual things. But these unusual things that we experience normally are the product of a man's hands. For example, a number of you have been down to Egypt and you have seen the pyramids. That is an unusual thing. It's, it's something to be seen. It's an amazement. It's a wonder of the world. Some of you have been to India and you have seen the Taj Mahal, another wonder of the world. And yet what Moses is going to experience here is not something that can be experienced from the hands of man, but is completely and totally a work of God. But notice how God uses this burning bush, as you and I know this story, how God uses this burning bush narrative to communicate something about his character. Moses is going to learn, and by extension, you and I are going to learn for the first time in the Pentateuch that God's very character is founded upon the characteristic of holiness. Look how this unfolds. And an angel of the Lord. This is not the first time that we've seen such an appearance in the context of the Pentateuch. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, 18, and 19, and we see this theophany. We see this revelation of of God himself. God is going to present himself through this theophany to Moses to reveal something about his very character. I would like to propose to you this morning that perhaps what we are seeing in these theophanies in the Old Testament of this revelation of the angel of the Lord is perhaps an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ himself. I would love to make an argument to you, especially from Genesis 18 and 19, that Jesus himself has appeared in that narrative and perhaps exactly what we're seeing take place here in this narrative. But for sure, we know that this is a messenger of the Lord. But this messenger of the Lord himself 
speaks with the same divine authority and power that Yahweh himself is used to speaking with. And in fact, the text itself reveals to us this is the Lord himself speaking. So an angel of the Lord, perhaps Jesus himself, appears in a, notice what the text says, a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Now I think it's interesting that the Lord decides to reveal himself to Moses through the image of fire. We will learn from the rest of the context of Scripture that the Lord is a consuming fire. But this is also how God reveals himself in the context of the book of Moses. Uh, Sorry, well, I guess that's fair, the book of Moses. The Pentateuch, Moses is the author. This is also how we see the Lord revealing himself throughout the rest of the book of Exodus. For example, in Exodus chapter 19, in that wonderful image back at Mount Sinai now, when Moses is going to go up on top of the mountain and and have communication with the Lord, ultimately receive, receive the ten words from God, the ten commandments, the Lord reveals himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 8 through a pillar of fire. You might remember Elijah in 1 Kings. How does the Lord accompany Elijah in 1 Kings? Through fire. Fire is used throughout the context of the text of Scripture as an image of God's very presence himself. Here, in Exodus chapter 3, the Lord himself has appeared to Moses in this flame of fire out of a bush. Now the image of this bush is one that Moses undoubtedly would have seen even as he had journeyed from the land of Midian down to Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb, the mountain of God. It's an image that can even be seen today in that, in that land. Moses would have for sure seen a small little bush, a tumbleweed we might say, think of, He perhaps has even seen a a small little bush even on fire, maybe perhaps fire for some type of warmth. But of course that little bush would have been consumed with that fire in just a matter of minutes and would have stopped producing fire. But for Moses, he's seeing this most unusual expression of a small bush on fire. It is a bush that continues to burn. So the Bible says that Moses looked and behold, the bush was burning continually, yet was not consumed. And Moses says, I'm going to turn aside. I'm going to pause for a few moments. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to inquire as to what is going on, why the bush is not being burned. And notice what happens when Moses turns. God reveals to Moses the very purpose of this burning bush experience. God wishes to teach Moses something about his very character. God is 
ultimately, completely, totally, wholly other than you and me and even Moses himself. Look what the text says. God called out to Moses, 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 and Moses said, here I am. And then the Lord gives him two commands. Number one, do not come near me. Do, and then secondly, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is what? Holy ground. This is the first time that we see reference to holiness, kadosh, from the Hebrew, since the very beginning of the narrative of Genesis. And don't be mistaken to think that the mountain itself, or the place where Moses is, is in, is in and of itself holy. What makes this experience, what makes this place holy, is God himself is there. It's the very presence of this holy God that necessitates this experience. And notice what happens when Moses comes into the very presence of this holy God. Moses learns something through this encounter. He learns that the way in which he approaches this holy God is completely different than the way in which Moses or you and I will approach any other person, being, or deity. God's holiness completely, totally separates him from who we are. Moses is not only being reminded from the very beginning of this narrative that his primary connection, his primary identity is with the people of God, but Moses through this narrative is being reminded that his ultimate identity is found in the very character of not who Moses is, but who God is. Moses' assignment carries this unique this uniqueness, not because of who Moses is, but because of who God is. God is one who is completely holy, and it changes the way we approach God. In Genesis chapter 32, we have this unusual encounter with Jacob and God. And the Bible tells us that Jacob has met God face to face. But as he meets God there at Peniel, we also learn that as he encounters this holy God, that Jacob himself even does what? He turns his face from a holy Righteous God. We learn, if you will, from the narrative in John, John chapter 1, verse 18, and communicated again in John chapter 6, verse 46. No one has seen the Father except the Son. Why? Because if you and I were to gaze upon God Himself, we would be consumed by His fire likeness, if you will. We would be consumed by His holiness. 
God is completely, totally holy and different than who we are. And Moses is taught in this encounter, it changes the very way in which we approach this God. You learn quickly that there is not this casualness with, it, with which Moses approaches God. Moses learns very quickly that, there, that this is a very unique situation and he is in the very presence of God. And so notice what happens first. Do not come near. Do not come close by. And secondly, take your shoes off for you are in the presence of a holy God. The place upon which you are standing is holy. It was a custom for sure, Moses would have been familiar with this custom. It was a custom in the ancient Near East that when you approach someone with great might and power that you remove your shoes as a sign of humility. Moses would have grown up in Pharaoh's home. He would have been, he would have been accustomed to this uh, procedure of approaching Pharaoh and having to remove his shoes. But this sign of distinction and humility before a holy God is something that we also learn, as I mentioned just a few moments ago, as the narrative continues in Exodus chapter 19, if you want to look at that narrative with me for just a few moments. Exodus chapter 19, Moses is going to be with the Lord. Listen at verse 9, verse 12, verse 18 in verse 23, Exodus chapter 19, verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. Verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Verse 18, now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it. How? In fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a, a killing, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. Look at verse 23. And Moses said to the, to the Lord, to Yahweh, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. God's holiness changes the way he interacts with his people. God's holiness demands a different response from his people as they encounter this holy God. What's your thought? How are you processing your interaction with this same holy God? How does this understanding of God's holiness and Him being completely distinct and other than who we are change the way in which we live our lives, the way in which we worship, the way in which we approach this holy God? 
Moses is reminded in this encounter with God of his holiness. He learns something about the very character of God that changes the way in which he interacts with God. But notice as the text unfolds, not only here in Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, but in all the rest of the narrative, it's also this holiness of God. This communication of God being completely distinct from his creation that also gives to Moses this sense of certainty that God will indeed accomplish his purpose. God's holiness serves as a reminder to you and me today as well in this same way. God is completely different than who we are, and it should change the way in which we approach Him and the way in which we worship Him. But God's holiness also serves as a reminder to us that God, being completely distinct, will indeed keep His promises to us. We can hope and take assurance in this communication of who God is. He is completely holy, but not only is God holy, God reminds Moses that he is one who is faithful. Look at verse 6, and he said to Moses, I am the God of your father. Now that's interesting. Normally we hear this revelation of God as being the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But notice what this text says. Moses, I'm even the God of your father. I'm the God of your father. I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm the God of Jacob. And Moses, notice what he does in the revelation of this faithfulness of God. He hides his face for he was afraid to look upon God. God is reminding Moses that he is faithful to his covenantal promises. As God reminds Abraham of his faithfulness, look at, look at Moses, as he reminds Moses, look at Moses' response, he hides his face. This isn't the first time that we've seen this image of one before God hiding his face. Let's go all the way back to the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They, they fall away from God. They fall into sin. And what does their sin demand of themselves? This separation from God in, in such a way that they now become ashamed of their sin. They now are fearful of God. And so what do they do? They go and hide themselves from God. Now, do Adam and Eve go hide themselves from God because God had changed or because Adam and Eve have changed? Adam and Eve have changed, friends. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God is still this same faithful, loving, holy, righteous, good God. But notice what happens and the narrative of Scripture, as sin has been woven into this narrative, it changes humanity's relationship with God. Moses sees God, hears from God, and now he hides his face. Sin separates us from 
God. How can Moses and how can you and I ever stand before this holy, faithful God? Well, friend, if you think this morning that you can stand before this holy, faithful God in your own might and in your own power and in your own righteousness, it will never happen. The only way for you and me to ever stand before this all-powerful, all-holy, all-faithful God is for us to stand before him having the righteousness of another. I can't stand before God in my own righteousness because in my own righteousness, my own righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. I desperately need the righteousness of another to be applied to my heart and to my life for me to stand before this holy God. And the righteousness that you and I need to stand before God is the righteousness of his son, Jesus Christ. And it's only through Jesus that this experience, that this expression of worship is even possible for you and me this morning. And we're going to see that the same faith that you and I must express is the same faith that Moses himself expressed, which allowed Moses to stand before this holy God and ultimately to be used by this holy God to accomplish his purposes. The narrative continues here in verse 7. It's a revelation of God's faithfulness. And look how God communicates his faithfulness to the nation of Israel or to Moses. God is not asleep. He's not unaware. God intimately knows the detail of Moses and his people, the nation of Israel. It's been a long time. The nation of Israel has been enslaved for over 400 years. We've already seen from the text of Scripture that the nation of Israel seems to think that God has forgotten. You might remember the language from chapter 2, verse 23, 24, and 25. Listen to that language again. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help, and their cry for rescue from slavery. What did it do? It comes up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, and God saw. And verse 25 ends, God knew. Look how God has reminded Moses of his faithfulness to his people here in verse 7. I have surely seen God is reminding Moses that he has carefully watched. God is reminding Moses that he is aware of every detail of the Israelites' enslavement to the nation of Israel. I have seen. I am completely aware of the affliction of whom? My people. God isn't disconnecting himself from his people, even though it seems like for these 400 years God has disconnected himself. No, God is still intimately aware of what is taking place in his, in his people's lives. He is faithful to his people, but not only does God see, God hears, and look at that last verb, God knows. 
we're reminded of what we already know from Exodus chapter 2, verses 23, 24, and 25 is now communicated to Moses and this communication of the faithfulness of God. But notice this verb in verse 8. God sees, he hears, and he knows. But look at verse 8. And I have come down. As we think about the very character of God and His being completely other than us, we speak of that in theological terms of the transcendence of God. He is far and away and removed from who we are, but we also speak of it in terms of the imminence of God and that God is closely connected to His people. Friends, do you see what God is reminding His people, Moses, what He's reminding Moses and His people, and by extension, you and me here? God is not only one who is completely, totally holy other than us, removed and far away from who we are. We can't even imagine and comprehend his greatness and his might and his ability. But notice what Moses reminds us. God is one who is intimately connected to his people. I will come down to you. Now, friends, this is not the first time that we've seen this image of God coming down. In fact, it's occurred twice in the Pentateuch up to this point, both of which have occurred in the book of Genesis. God has come down twice. In what ways? Both times in statements of judgment. God comes down first in this narrative in Genesis chapter 10 and what you, 11 and what you and I know as the Tower of Babel. But God's coming down should not be, should not be considered in terms of his coming down to incarnate himself among his people, to guide his people, and to be a savior for his people. God coming down in the narrative of the Tower of Babel is a sign of God's might and God's power, God's disdain for sin. It is a statement of God's judgment. But it occurs again in the narrative of Genesis. And God comes down again in the narrative in Sodom and Gomorrah. And what is the image of Sodom and Gomorrah? A sign of judgment. But notice this time, friends. God isn't just coming down now in a sign of judgment. God is now coming down in a sign of salvation. I will come down to you. I will come down to do what? To deliver you out of the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. That image of bringing up out is an image of crossing the Red Sea. And look what God is going to do. He's going to be faithful to his covenantal promises. I'm going to bring you to the land that I promised. A land flowing with milk and honey. A sign of God's providence. A sign of God's care. God has come down in Exodus to provide salvation for the nation of Israel, but God has come down for you and me as well, friends. 
God has come down through His Son, Jesus Christ, and God in that coming also came to deliver His people from their sins. Have you, have you had an encounter with this coming down, God? Have you experienced in a saving way have you experienced in a life-changing, in a life-transforming way this God who has come to save his people from their sins? God is not one who is only disconnected from us. God is not one who is just creator. God is not one who is just created so that you and I might be able to enjoy the narrative of life. God is ultimately a savior. He is one that has come so that we might have a right relationship with him. This is the narrative of the book of Exodus. Exodus reminds us that ultimately God's character is one of a savior. Why? Because he's faithful. He's faithful to his promises. Why? Because he is completely, totally holy other than who we are. And this is exactly what God reveals to Moses in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus chapter 11, after we've been given all of these law codes, we learn that God has a right to, to, to demand the holiness of his people. Why? For two reasons. Because God himself is holy. But not only because God is holy. Chapter 11, verses 45 and 46, God also has a right to demand our holiness because he is a God who saves. Moses has a right to, God has a right, Yahweh has a right to make a dictate against Moses' life and God has a right to make a dictate against my life. Why? Because he's holy. Why? Because there isn't another person who has provided you salvation other than God himself, and he's done it so beautifully through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see this narrative? God is continually reminding his people of his character. Why? So that his people can be continually reminded that our lives do not depend on us, but completely and totally depend upon God. And look how God shows us that in this text at the close of this narrative. Verse 10, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? And God says to him, Moses, don't worry. I will be with you. Here is a promise of help and guidance. I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. God's revealed himself as one who is holy. God has revealed himself as one who is faithful. And Moses is reminded it's not about him 
and it's all about God. God is going to give a task to Moses, a task that seems completely and totally unusual. It's not going to work. There's no way. But notice what God is reminding Moses here. Moses, it's not about you. It's not about your ability. So we read this text in verse 11. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt as possibly an indication that Moses is looking at his own self and saying, Lord, in and of myself, I can't do this. Perhaps we read this as a statement of of Moses' unbelief. But this is actually a statement of great humility. This is actually Moses acknowledging before God, I can't do it without you. Lord, I desperately need you. And look what God says. Here's my promise. I'm going to be with you. You can accomplish whatever you need to, not because of who you are, Moses, but because of who I am. And then look at what he says, and he gives him a sign. And this fulfillment sign is one that requires faith. Why? Because proof is going to follow. You might expect in this context, Moses says, Lord, I need a sign from you. How am I going to know that what I'm doing is indeed right and the Lord's going to be like, okay, Moses, look back at that burning bush again. It's on fire. And Moses turns back and looks at the burning bush and says, oh, wow, that really is God. Okay, God, you've given me the sign. I'm going to do it. But notice the sign that Moses is given. Moses is given a sign that is to be fulfilled when? In the future. He's given a promise of help, a promise of guidance, and he's given a sign that, by the way, Moses isn't going to take place anytime soon. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of like, Lord, I need the sign now. I want it right now. Write it in the sky for me. Give it to me at this very moment. If I'm going to accomplish this task for you, I need to see it now. But no, this is not, friends, the way in which faith works. Moses, in this instance, is an example to you and me of the way in which faith works. See, faith is a fulfillment sign, if you will. Faith is ultimately you placing your trust and your hope in a God who has acted in the past with a promise to act in the future in his return. And Moses gives to us this example of what it looks like to live our lives in obedience to God, hearing the promises of God, knowing that we have been given God's help and God's guidance, and knowing that God will indeed be faithful to his word in the future. And how has God done that? 
God has done that by sending to you, you and me, Jesus. But Jesus leaves and says, I'm going to give to you another. And who is that another? The Holy Spirit. See, friends, we live in this same covenantal promise that was given to Moses himself today. For we serve this same God who is or who has promised his guidance and his help and he's given to us the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit serves today, right now, at this moment as a source of truth and guidance and hope and encouragement in your life. But God has also given us a sign that is in the future. And what is that sign that is in the future? I am coming again. God says here in Genesis, in Exodus chapter three, I've come down. God comes down in Exodus to help his people. God comes down in the New Testament through the person of Jesus to redeem his people, but that's not the end of the narrative, friend. The end of the narrative is Jesus is coming down again. God is coming down again. And notice what's going to happen in this second coming of Christ, in this future promise, in this future promise, God in coming down again is coming down in a statement of judgment and of salvation. A sign of judgment to those who have not believed. And friend, you should take no hope or glory in Jesus' return if you've never placed your faith and your trust and your hope in him. Why? Because Jesus' second coming will be a statement of judgment against your rebellion against God. But for the redeemed, friends, God's coming down is a sign of final, complete, fulfilled salvation, a process we call glorification. Have you trusted in this God? Have you seen the character of this God, that he is holy and that he is faithful? And has that brought you to salvation? For those who are saved, do you reflect back on God's character? For remember, God is continually reminding his people of who he is. Why? So that we might be continually reminded that that which God has called us to today, at this moment, does not depend upon our ability, but upon his faithfulness. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the promise of your word. We thank you that you have given to us these texts of Scripture that continually reminds us of who you are so that our hearts might be guided and steadied upon your truth, upon your word. We thank you this morning that you are a God who has revealed himself through his words. You gave your word, God, to Moses. You have given your word to us through Jesus. You've given your word to us through the Bible. It's through your word, by your spirit, that you guide us, that you direct us.
that you increase our faith. Would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning, friend, and reflect upon the preaching of God's word? For those of you who have believed, in what way does a reflection upon God's holiness and his faithfulness How do those two characteristics change the way in which you approach God? How does that affect your worship of God? How does that change an understanding of even who you are? Are you regularly, daily, moment by moment, living your life in light of that reality? How does this communication of who God is grant you assurance and hope of salvation? How does it affect the way in which you serve God Hope in God. Worship God. Friend, if you're here today and you've never trusted in Christ, you've never believed in Him, would you hear the words of this text of Scripture and be compelled by the Word of God and the Holy Spirit of your need to trust in Christ? Would you, like Moses, have faith in God? Would you realize today that you can't do it on your own accord? Would you confess today that you are a sinner separated from God and that you need forgiveness? We're reminded that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. Maybe you're here this morning and you have questions about what it means to trust in God. As we sing, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. Please feel free to come to one of us, and we'll be glad to take a moment with you and share with you how you can trust in Christ. But friend, please don't feel like you have to come forward and talk to one of us. There are plenty of people seated around you who would be delighted to take a few moments and to share with you how you can trust in Christ. Please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you and ask them, how can I trust in Christ? Secondly, maybe you would like for one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text of Scripture might indeed be evident in your life that you would live your life on a daily basis being reminded of, of God's character and in doing so that that might increase your faithfulness to God. We would delight in shepherding your hearts by praying for you. Thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our responses be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.